0: Hello everybody and welcome to Libromancy, a podcast about the magic of books. I'm Josh and today I'm talking about Tongue Eater by John Bierce. So let's pack to the magic of books. Now, first off, I just want to say this was very... I mean, it was intense to me, but I could see some people maybe coming away from this not loving it as much as I did. This was so much fun. We go through so many kind of uh, crazy escapades. We see a lot of different things coming on and going through, and we don't know a lot of what's going on in this book. Well, that's, that's weird to say, but we, we know a lot of what's going on, but we don't. Now, I don't think anybody is going to say that they disagree with me too hard when I say that this book is all about... Preparation for the seventh and final book in this series. I'm not mad about it. I understand kind of why he, why John Beers felt the need. He needed to push the book series out to another book and to add this, so we have a little bit more time and a little bit more kind of ramping up time for our heroes, so that they're not going from all right. We just had this huge fight. Now we're going to immediately do this. And I feel like having this book and the seventh book, which I've never read together, would just make this. It would make it either an exceptionally big book that was just too much. And and so I think by cutting it into two books, it makes it much better and I do feel like wow, well, it's tough to say Thanks. the plot here was to, to do a couple things here. If you this is gonna be a little spoilery for the last books, which if you're starting on the sixth book, then you have power to you, but I would definitely recommend starting at book one. But the main goal of this or plot of this book is to get a little bit more power and to help Kandarin become free from the from how she's been injured and she's not quite dead but not quite alive. Right? And we're gonna talk a little bit about that right now because it doesn't uh it's not a huge Spoiler for the whole book, but basically her magic and their warlock pact has kind of become attuned to a different state and it needs to be kind of shocked back. And so a certain way they have to do that, and that's what the main goal here is, along with getting a little bit more kind of knowledge and power. So that's what our main crew is going up is up to during this book. Now we're also getting a lot of a lot of point of view from Alustan, which was nice to see, but at the same time, I'm like ah. I kind of, well, I'm trying very debated about this because I don't want to see more of a Luston because I don't want to have to change my opinion on him again and be like, he was great. Now he's bad. Now he's doing it for the right reason. Because we all know he's not, you know, the way he went about it is wrong. And okay, I think, I, I'm sorry, guys, three minutes in, we're just going to have to go into spoilers. Because there's too much to talk about in this book that I can't talk about in the non spoiler section. So, sorry we're going into spoilers. But the tongue eater is driving a loose crazy. It's putting words in his mouth. It starts with curse words. And, you know, I think I know why it starts with the curse words. It starts with curse words because they're words that you do under extreme emotional it, you know things when you're in emotions and you're just like ah, you want to curse. That's when the tongue eater can kind of slip those words in, and the more words it slips in, the easier it's going to be for him to take over all the way. I I, I keep I'm just come on, Alustan, you got to stop this. You, the tongue eater. Yes, you're going to get your revenge, but the Tongue Eater is a bad idea. It is not the way to get revenge. Like, destroying the whole continent is not a good idea. Now, I kind of love his idea his plan. I'm going to take all of the allies that hate Havath against, or still, that used to be allies with Helicop, but didn't come in our hour of need. And I'm going to bring them all through to Havath, and then I'm going to release it. So I'll kill them, and I'll kill Havath. And all the people who didn't, you know, who betrayed Helicote. It's a good plan, you know, A plus on Thought Alustin, but again, this is just gonna be bad, especially since it's driving you crazy. Now, Alustan did have a really cool thing. He creates his Relay Cube, which lets him split his Farseer, well, helps him split his Farseer affinity so that he can do 12 different kind of things at once and make adjustments. He's basically become the control center of any operation, especially with his power ups to his paper uh, magic and his ink magic well ink magic really just levels up his paper magic so that was a really cool thing that he's he made and has been coming up with and we learn a lot more about him like he's always making these origami animals that's why he always has so many he makes as many as he can every day while staying under safe limits and he's increasing his ink uh, mana reservoir now the only downside to use the relay cube is that the tongue eater was able to seize seven of the 12 or er, Yeah, seven of the twelve parts of his mind until the the relay cube uh, the tongue eater was able to grab seven twelfths of his mind until the relay cube was destroyed so mm, perhaps it was best that it was only a one time use kind of a thing and of course we're learning more about Valia and that she doesn't know about all these multiversal people manipulating things behind the scenes you've got Kandarin's patrons versus the Havathi patrons who are also the Ithonian patrons and I'm pretty sure this is prediction number one I make thinking Valia is going to turn against Havath and either save Elluston or she'll die in place of Elluston. I don't know what's going to happen, but she's going to turn and she's going to join Elluston because she never knew about this multiversal meddling and she does not like it. Okay, next little prediction here. Um, I don't know how, but I totally missed that at the very end of the book that Canderon or that the Watcher and the Liar and a Kyrene birth like watch her show up. I, knew, I remember they showed up and they talked a little bit at the end, but I didn't realize that it was that important that Kanderon had built this huge thing underground. So, and then s- surrounded it in planar spaces so it could never be moved or detected or like disturbed. And she basically just shot energy into it and into it and into it. And it's like, what What's this going on? So I have to wonder if Kanderon is like evolving into something else also because of the Warlock Pact, which Hugh you know pacted with Godric and Talia and Sabe, so they all share their affinities. That's very scary. First off, we'll get to that in a minute. But I wonder if Canderon might be gaining some of these new affinities as well. Now, theoretically, she shouldn't, because the Warlock bonds with you know it's, he's Kandorin wasn't involved in that bond, but it kind of was because it had to shake that had to shake their bond free, right? So that could be very scary if she all of a sudden has you know, 12 Affinities as well. Now let's uh, talk, and it's obviously a very important moment because everybody's coming to watch it, so... So let's talk about our crew. They warlock packed each other, and they all say, "Hey, I trust you. You trust me. You know, we're basically a big old family, right?" So they uh, they packed each other with no clauses, no restrictions, no nothing. And that's just that was impressive in the first part. And they use this nice aether crystal to channel it through, so that they can do this, and it forms them each rings that they have that has their own has all twelve affinities on the ring, and each affinity has its own mana reservoir which is going to continuously grow and grow and grow right That's crazy. And then they also get all 12 affinities. And while they're binding it, they see each other's aether bodies. And we learn why Talia's bone magic is so messed up. Because during year one, she somehow ruptured her uh, bone reservoir. And dream mana reservoir has been leaking into it. Now, this is kind of just an odd thing. But that's why her bones grow before they explode. Because of the dream. And then the bone kind of just, the bone that grows was just like ambient dust or whatever being made. And then it just disappears again. So kind of a cool thing, but they are just, they did something very, very scary here because they get visited by somebody who's like, oh, you guys did a big power thing. You guys are not smart. You should not have done this in the labyrinth. You shouldn't have done this alone. You shouldn't have done this only protected by one type of magic. I'll watch over you guys though. Don't worry. You know, okay, who are you? Why are you watching over us? Like, I appreciate it. I love it when my heroes don't get murdered in the, you know, while they're asleep because they didn't know better right but oh boy they've got some learning to do now granted in the time they have before the next book they're not going to have that much time to like practice their affinities so I really do like that they're like okay everybody let's all pick one of the next one of these uh, magics we have and we'll just strictly use that for siege magic because as we learned in the previous book siege magic kind of ruins that reservoir for anything but siege magic which is a huge downfall for Siege Magic. But on the other hand, if you have 12 affinities, you're probably not going to be able to train one of them very well. So you might as well just train it to be Siege Magic. So Godric, of course, chooses the obvious. Well, Starfire is going to be my Siege Magic. Good choice there, Godric. I love it. And Hugh picks steel. Now, I I kind of understand Hugh picking steel. He's got rock with a stone, which kind of overlaps with his crystal, and steel doesn't. And steel is very specific, but it's not super useful for him. But I'm like, in my mind, I'm thinking dream magic all the way there. I'm sure there's a lot of good dream siege magic you could be doing that just overwhelms and annihilates everything in your path. Like, let's go. Now, this was the one question I kind of had about this save cannot use magic more than an inch away from her right because of her healing magic because healing magic is close range so why when they all packed do they not get her weakness of having healing magic being only an an inch away I, i can't remember exactly what was said but Hugh said something about it being a mana technique and i'm like well how I would they teach her that mana technique if it's, you know what I mean? Like how did she learn the inch away only mana technique that requires the formless? Or is it just because of the way her for, like obviously Talia did not give them corrupted fire dreams or fire dream fire, because it's, they don't have the tattoos. So they just get regular dream and regular bone mana. So I have to think it's just something to do with. They have, yeah, somehow in Sabe that connect, those connections kind of messed it up and the rest it didn't. Now I'm glad none of them chose Helig as their siege magic because that would be obviously a bad idea now this is funny because they're like oh yeah let's do this and then Talia and Sabe are both like oh yeah we've actually figured out something even better than just dedicating one to siege magic but we're not going to tell you we're going to work on it and surprise you with it in battle and that just totally rings true for Talia because when they're fighting on kimetria in the, the ruined planet right and they're fighting on the back of the the is what I call it in my mind, right? Um, she's wrestling with one of the paper mages. Well, it's not paper mages, it's the armor of the paper armor and she shoots the dream fire stream out of her mouth and she thinks to herself, you know if you're not gonna be dramatic about it and use good presentation, then why are you even a battle mage? And it's just like, yes, that is so Talia, that's so awesome, So funny. Oh and I let's just talk a little bit about the labyrinths. I like this description. I thought this was a really nice kind of atmosphere. He's describing the way that the atmosphere slowly shifts from like your world atmosphere or your world labyrinth to just a regular kind of labyrinth and then back into the next world labyrinth and we also get different types of labyrinths. We get you know regular labyrinths that we're used to and we get mist form labyrinths which are just mist and you have to just know the path, which of course with mackerel the magical labyrinth stone is going to be easy to get through. And then we have like hybrid ones where it's like mist form up to a certain point and then a regular labyrinth. Now, this was pretty funny and pretty good. And I loved when they get to the first world they go to because the more distance they put between them, the easier it is to shake that bond loose. And like, oh yeah, we'll just go to a different world. That'll, that's really far. We'll get that done quick. And the first world they go to, Apoptus, and they're like, He was like, okay, here's the rules. Don't rest under the trees. Don't expose your skin. And when the world turns white, we have a few minutes before we all die. And it's like, what? Oh, that's crazy. And so it's a pretty fun, interesting world that he's created. There's carnivorous trees. There's other plants and animals. There's plants. But as soon as the sun starts turning white or the plants start turning white, the sun's about to do a solar flare kind of thing that just destroys everything. They barely survive the first one. Then they meet some Kyrene. Which are just a crazy species themselves, and they protect them. They're very nice. I like the Kyrene. Kind of excited to see what's going on with them in the future. And I like the uh, addition that John Beers put in that when you go to a new world, you get aether sickness and you pass out, or you get sick, or you throw up, and the reactions depend on what aether you've already attuned to in the past and what you're attuning to right then. So it's kind of different for every time, everywhere you go. But it always happens. And then they even get it when they come back to Anastas. They're like, hey, we're back on Anastas. And then they all start vomiting. And they're like, oh, come on. Like, this is our own mana. We shouldn't be sick with this. But it's just a nice little thing that he's put in there that I like. And then they go, after they shake the bond loose, they have some extra time. And they go to Limnus, which is an interesting world. You got chlorine pits on the ground. Not chlorine pits, but like chlorine clouds on the the lower levels and you got iodine pits on the upper levels they're not again not pits but like clouds right and they kind of live there but the magic of limness is that the more you push yourself and the harder you work the more your body adapts so if you go up to the iodine clouds more and more often your body will keep adapting and then you'll be able to survive it longer and longer and the same if you go to chlorine or if you do both i'm sure there's something you could do there but the people all wear masks and they wear these silk cloths that protect their things and so the nice thing about this magic though is that you can get it after about a month your body starts adapting and they have about that much time plus a little bit before Elustan's declared attack because of course he declared when he's going to attack Avoth you know it has to be the anniversary of when Avoth destroyed Helicote and nothing's going to stop him from doing that now We're going to skip back to Alustin for a second. What is the last echo of the Lord of Bells? Multiple times we hear Alustin talking about it and saying, oh, yes, I've activated it. This is what it is. But in his head, he's thinking, well, I'm not going to tell you exactly what it is. But all, all he says is it will punch through the Havathi's defenses, and then they'll be able to go in and destroy the dream eater or the tongue eater. And okay, we're going to switch back to Mackerel for a second here. Mackerel grows up. He's growing up. He doesn't like to do pranks anymore. And he's trying to just be serious. And then he apologizes to Sabe. And Sabe like, oh, by the way, I was just pranking you, Mackerel, because you're always pranking us. So I was tricking you into growing up, basically. Pretty funny. And it's nice to see their lightheartedness because most of the time Sebay's way overwhelmed with trying to make all the decisions and be like, well, I'm the group leader, but like, how am I supposed to figure out how to remove the great powers? Because if I remove one more, will just grow up in its place. And I don't want to do that. And they're all like, whoa, Sebe, calm down. Like, we got to go stop Alustin. But like, we are like years and years away from actually having to like make any really big decisions about how to stop the great powers and like reset the cycle. Well... This is as far as I've read, so the next book, I have absolutely no idea what's coming. I am super excited for it. I can't wait to read it and share my thoughts with it about you guys. So so that's going to wrap up my discussion of Tongue Eater by John Bierce. Thanks everybody for listening, and thanks to David Hillowitz for the intro and outro music. Of course, if you have any questions, comments, please send those to libromancypod at gmail.com. Please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. And remember to packed with the magic of books.